This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're looking for some interesting testimony out of the big corruption trial today with Larry Householder likely to be cross-examined after a lengthy day of testimony on Wednesday. It's the first story we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Lisa starts it. Larry Helsolder, as I said, did take the stand in his own defense Wednesday, and he told us who originally introduced him to Chuck Jones, then the head of First Energy. And Lisa, we know how things turned out after that. So who was it and where did it happen? Chris, it was a dark and stormy night. It was game (laughs) seven of the 2016 World Series at Progressive Field. Uh, Larry Householder and his wife Tondra were in attendance and they wanted to get out of the rain. So they ran into Cleveland Browns owner Jimmy Haslam, who invited them into the first energy corporate box to get out of the rain. And that's where he met then- First Energy CEO Chuck Jones, and this was just a month before his re-election to the Ohio House. He was already eyeing the House Speaker position, and he wanted to rekindle his relationships from when he was in the House before. And uh, as we know, First Energy bribes helped Householder defeat then-Speaker Ryan Smith. So Householder's testimony began with his biography, all the soft stuff. He, He was a graduate from Ohio University. He founded Perry County a Perry County insurance company. He was county commissioner and he rose to the Ohio House and returned in 2016. And he said that he was concerned about then speaker Cliff Rosenberger and that's what prompted him to run for House Speaker. And then he also met Jeff Longstreth through uh, then Congressman or Congress Mike Carey, who was at Murray Energy then, which is an Ohio coal company. And Longstreth did political work for Murray. But like I said, it was mostly his bio. The first photo that they introduced into evidence was a picture of him and his wife, Tondra. Let's go back to the Jimmy Haslam thing for a minute, because it is interesting. Uh, There's no no sign, no allegation, nothing to say Jimmy Haslam had anything to do whatsoever with this corruption scheme. But the fact that he's in the first energy box and introduces Chuck Jones to Householder is ugly, right? Because the Haslam's are are under a cloud. They've had a series of pretty big missteps in Cleveland. They, you know, the whole Watson thing, which has cost them part of their fan base. They were involved in that very ugly race-tinged ad against the ultimately winning mayor, Justin Bibb. They have a stadium named yes. for First Energy that people have said, get rid of that name. They're a corrupt company. Why would you keep them? And they've defended it. And now it turns out he 
invited them in and introduced them. And that was really the beginning of this scheme. It's an ugly look for the Haslam's at the very moment. It sounds like they're about to ask Cleveland for hundreds of millions of dollars for a new stadium. Not a good look. Right. And, you know, there was that huge call for many people, myself included, to have them scrub the first energy name from the stadium, which they didn't do. So this looks like a lot of cozy relationships kind of coalescing at a at a at will hopefully turn out to be a bad time for Larry Householder. But, yeah, it's not a good look, as you say. Well, the Haslam's who are not from here have tried to insert themselves into the fabric of Cleveland and they've been political, but they've been on the bad side of a lot of stuff. And this is just, again, they're not involved in the corruption, but it's a bad look. And if they knew this was in the background when they were asked to take First Energy's name off the stadium, it should have might have played a role in it. I can't imagine we're not going to see new calls for that. When I saw this come out yesterday, I was just like, whoa, of all the people in all the world to make an introduction, right? <laughs> also shocking that, that Larry Householder came to Cleveland. I mean, I thought he really disliked this part of the state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was game seven of the World Series. So, yeah, that would be a draw for me. But Yeah, anyway, it was, uh, it was the surprise of the day because, like you said, Lisa, it was pretty tame testimony. We, we are a little bit surprised that the, the uh, defense attorneys went so deep in, in the questioning of Householder because that opens everything up to cross-examination. Most defense attorneys who put a witness on the stand try to put them up there very briefly just so the jury gets to see them and hear them say they didn't do it because anything that is testified to can be cross-examined. And you got to think that the prosecution spent the night studying every word and coming up with strategies for today. We'll be talking about it tomorrow. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is this a good sign of things to come? How did new Senator J.D. Vance and veteran Senator Sherrod Brown team up on a potential genuine solution for train issues in Ohio? Laura? You got to give credit where credit is due. And Vance and Brown are working together to introduce legislation to add railway regulations, things that sound really common sense and neither blue nor red. It's not just them. It's Pennsylvania's two senators who are both Democrats, plus Republicans Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley. So a wide array across the political spectrum here. This bill would require well-trained two-person crews aboard every train. It would substantially increase maximum fines that the U.S. Department of Transportation can issue for safety violations. And it would expand hazmat training grants for local first responders by increasing the fees assessed to the railroads. So something business would have to pay for. A couple other things I'm sure the local fire officials would like. They'd have to create new safety requirements and procedures for the trains that carry those hazardous materials and provide advanced notification to state emergency response officials about what they're transporting. Also setting rules for train size and weight and requirements to prevent blocked rail crossings, which in a town that doesn't have overpasses can be a real problem getting places. Yeah, and there are a lot of cities across America that have wanted to regulate the time mm-hmm. that roads could be blocked. That's a big, big deal, although it could be expensive for railroads. Look, we've been saying for weeks that the grandstanding by politicians at East Palestine has been pretty gross, that it's been just let's turn it into a political football. And we, w- with the federal officials, with the congressional folks, we've said, hey, it's in your power mm-hmm. to do something about it. What's really heartening is that both of them, 
Republican and Democrat got together and said, let's do exactly that. And this is this is the legislation you need. This makes a difference for the long term. If Cleveland fire officials know that serious bad stuff is coming through four times a day at what hours, if they get a call about something, they're going to know what it is. It's a big deal. So I salute them. And, you know, Lisa was saying after the podcast yesterday, she's liked a good bit of what she's seen with J.D. Vance. I got to think that this this keeps that feeling going, right, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, he could have been extremist. He could have been, you know, in the in the Freedom Caucus, you know, ranks. But I feel like he's trying to draw a line down the middle. You know, don't forget, he was a Trump, an anti-Trumper before he ran for office. And I'm wondering if this is some calculation just to get elected and then show that he's maybe a more moderate person. Now, this is a good sign. So let's let's see it for what it is. Hopefully this will get passed and officials all through the country will get some control over what's going through there. Because of, you know, we talked about all of the the attention on East Palestine and and whether it's warranted compared to other disasters in the United States. This there's a lot of pressure here. Right. So I don't know that anybody will come out and and do the railroads bidding here and say, no, no, this is unnecessary legislation. There's enough public pressure that I feel like this is going to get through. Well, Sherrod Brown and Josh Hawley now walking arm in arm. <laughs> Not something we'd ever thought we'd see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's stick with the trains. The Federal Railroad Administration is not a voice we've heard much from in the aftermath of the East Palestine train derailment. But Layla, what did they say yesterday? They're beginning a new nationwide program of focused track inspections on rail routes that carry large amounts of hazardous and flammable materials. The FRA administrator told reporters that the agency will use a combination of human inspectors and technology, including a specialized track inspection vehicle to make sure that tracks are safe. He said that FRA will also take a hard look at signal and train control infrastructure systems. They'll look at operating practices of dispatchers and crews and and look at mechanical equipment that transports hazardous materials, including tank cars. Apparently, they've done this before. In 2017, there were heightened inspections on routes carrying crude oil, and they found thousands of defects across 44 states, which uh, I assume have been addressed. But the the agency is also urging railroads to examine their policies for using and maintaining hot box detectors that monitor the temperature of wheel bearings on passing tracks or trains. Uh, An overheated bearing obviously appears to have played a major role in the East Palestine derailment. And in fact, hot bearings caused four other derailments, including one in Sandusky back in October, according to the FRA. But Sherrod Brown says that number is actually more like 78 derailments caused by overheated bearings since 2018, which is absolutely terrifying to think about. Yeah, I I, I don't imagine you have this experience, but I've actually have the experience of walking a dog near a railroad track that carries this kind of stuff on a fairly regular basis. And I'm always struck by the number of railroad spikes that have popped out Mm -hmm. from the things that hold the rails in. And you see it and you think, well, there must be redundancy built in because, you know, this would be a big problem. But I wonder if part of the inspection is to make sure these things are actually held in place or they're flexing too much when the trains go through. It's a good move by the 
by the FRA, but it's not something that a crisis should do. They should be doing this regularly. Right. Why else yeah. do they exist? I know, exactly. You know, I got to say, so last year we were renting, while we were doing our, our home uh, our home renovation, we were renting a house, um, <laughs> and it was literally feet from the railroad track, feet. I, maybe 20 feet. We were sitting on the real. I am so glad I didn't know any of these statistics back then. I don't think I don't think a single pa- I would have had a panic attack with every passing train. Right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got one more on the train. It's what journalists used to call the Hey Mabel story. What is the background on a guy who was about to be appointed to a vacant Ohio House seat? as lawmakers hold a hearing on the East Palestine derailment. Lisa? His name is Justin Pizzuli. He's a Republican from Scioto County, and he was recommended to fill the House District 90 seat to finish the term of Brian Baldridge, who is now DeWine's director of Department of Agriculture. But he is currently a a commercial freight conductor for Norfolk Southern Railroad. He has only had the job since last May, but, you know, he's had previous, uh, he was a realtor before, he's had had several political jobs. He ran against Baldridge in 2018 in the primary, but he came in third out of four candidates. So this is probably a coincidence, but the House decided not to vote on him to approve him. He was chosen from seven applicants by a GOP screening committee. House Speaker Jason Stevens says he thinks Pizzuli has enough votes and he wants to work to get Pizzuli appointed, but he says he would rather have an extreme majority or a unanimous vote before the appointment vote. He says it's not a personal thing, but, uh, you know, he said he wants a consensus because we know the House is very divided between the those that supported Stevens and those who wanted to have Derek Marin be the House Speaker. So Ron Ferguson from East Ohio, who backs Marin, says he doesn't think Pizzuli has the votes, and he's upset that neither Marin nor his top allies were on the screening committee. They weren't there. So he says the process is so bad that it's a concern. But the screening committee does have two people who voted for Marion as speaker, three of them for Stevens and one who was not present for the vote. Yeah, I I can't help but think having somebody who understands the railroad business involved in these conversations would be a good thing. Um, I mean, all, all the politics aside, it's just how interesting that this is happening now. Uh, we'll see if he gets approved. It's today in Ohio. February was one for the record books weather-wise. How far back do we need to go for February that had less snow? I mean, we had so little that Laura and her husband were fighting over who got to have the snow shovel Saturday for the one chance they had to clear snow from the driveway. I know every marriage is different. And Laura's... They fight I did for the not shovel. steal it out of his hand. It was just, you know, 630 in the morning. I could hear him shoveling. I woke up. I ran downstairs. I was like, don't finish my part because we each have our parts of the driveway. He has to do the really tough part that's extra wide and you have to shovel away from the garage. Anyway, so I just like, wanted my chance to shovel this season. <laughs> There's something so satisfying about like, this is what I accomplished. So, um no, Something we were so not... satisfying about shoveling a driveway. I don't know how many people would agree with you. I, but... mean, I agree. I, thank you. <laughs> Maybe not the 30th time, but you know, there it's it's some good energy effort that you can see the results of. So I'm anyway. Bet, I'm betting you'll still get the chance, but to date, right. how are things going? 
so our snow total for the season, counting the late fall, is the lowest in at least a half century by this time of year. We've had a measly 1.2 inches in snow in February. And total for the winter, 18.7, which honestly, that sounded high to me. I had to double check that. I'm like, really? We got 18 anytime? Uh, 48 inches is the median for this time of year. That's in winter of 05, 06. And the highest recently was 2002, 2003. 88.9 inches. We had five 60 degrees or higher days in February. We had a high of 48.2 for the month. That's 10 degrees, what 10 degrees above what's typical. The second highest average for as long as the National Weather Service has been taking that official reading at the airport, which started in May 1938. So yeah, this has been warm. Yeah, I, I, th- this really has been one where it's been stunning. We've hit 60 on numerous occasions across the winter, way more than I can ever remember. And as we're heading to the first day of spring, it looks like we've just avoided winter. But as, Wait, oh, go ahead, Laura. No, you're. I was going to say, as the old saying goes, when March comes in like a lamb, it goes out like a lion. It's it, it, totally true. And my first winter here back when I moved back in 2007, we got 30 inches of snow in March, which was a record. It's probably still standing because I had to write the story. But I, I just remember thinking, oh, my God, it's like never going to stop snowing. And the worst, at least it melts fairly quickly in March. But when when you get in and all you want to do is like wear your spring clothes and and be outside and like enjoy some sunshine and it just keeps snowing it's way worse than if it were snowing in january and february the next 10 days don't really show any although the lake is so warm that if we get any kind of arctic blast in march or april there's the potential for huge snowfalls it's just gonna absorb all that moisture and lay it all on us on the east side lisa (laughs) i'm glad you mentioned the lake because i think the most it ever froze we got up to the mid-teens uh, in when we had that cold snap in early, early February. But it's it's so not frozen. There was absolutely no ice fishing this year. And Miller Boat Line started daily service to, to Putin Bay on Wednesday. That's one of the earliest starts they can remember. And so you can take your ferry. Not that there's a lot of tourism going on, but there is a lot of construction getting ready for the season. So those people don't have to fly over, which is the norm for this time of year. Yeah, it's it's one we'll be talking about. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, why is it that the city of Cleveland has barely spent any of its more than half billion dollars in federal stimulus cash? Well, our great stimulus watch reporter, Lucas Deprilli, has has been assembling a pretty detailed database of contracts related to ARPA projects in, in many of our municipalities, including the city of Cleveland, of course. And it struck him that As of late February, the city has finalized only 3% of the $173.4 million in ARPA spending that Mayor Justin Bibb has proposed for specific projects. This this small handful of contracts were connected to three education-related projects worth $5.2 million. One is bonuses for early child care workers. Another is scholarships to help improve access to child care. And then the third was funding to help Say Yes Cleveland to continue their family support specialist program. But at this rate, Lucas says they could run afoul of the deadline to spend all the money, which is the end of 2024. 
city council has been passing legislation authorizing the money to be spent, but each of those contracts takes months to process. They have to select the vendor, work out the details, you know, get city council approval. Bibb's office says there's room for improvement in their pace, but they generally feel like everything's moving along as they expected it to. They pointed to a handful of contracts that are in the final stages. But you know, meanwhile, our peer cities in Ohio have been moving a whole lot faster than this. Cincinnati has 42 contracts on the books. Columbus has 126. Akron has 48. Cleveland still hasn't chosen a vendor even for its $20 million broadband expansion program, which council approved way back in September 2021. So... Yeah, uh, but remember, that $20 million thing was part of the Kevin Kelly push to get elected mayor. They didn't, that, that, that was so ill-defined and so unclear that we, we were confused by it. You had no idea what that meant. It almost seemed like it was, it was just so they could say it. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's, it's, what is it, March 2nd, right? I mean, there is a lot of time before the end of 2024. I don't know that that a city should be racing to get these things in. You'd want it to be spent correctly. You want the contracts to be limiting. We've seen cities that race through things before do bad things with the money. And we compared it to Cuyahoga County. And I think those folks raced to get the contracts out because they were slush funds and they were worried that the new executive would come in and figure out a way to block it. Yeah, but I think even Council President Blaine Griffin is a little bit concerned about it. I mean, he said that he would like to button some of these up sooner rather than later. Uh, He says that part of the problem is City Hall is notoriously understaffed in some departments that are critical for getting contracts done, you know, law department, economic development, and, and, uh, you know, and, and... Lucas spoke to Tom Sutton of Baldwin Wallace's Community Research Institute, who says, you know, it's probably an accountability problem. The mayor needs to put the put the pressure on his staff to get these things moving through the pipeline. Yeah, it was stimulus money to help everybody get through the pandemic. And we're moving out of the the all of the freezing that happened in the pandemic. It'll help with the recession that's predicted, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we'll see. I'll be interested to see what they do with that 20 million in broadband because we couldn't really figure out what the plan was. It is though a general uh, goal that, that Justin Bibb supports. So yeah, right. So how will they do it? What will they do? we, We still have no clue. It's a year and a half later and we still have no clue. You're listening to today in Ohio. What is to be done with the Lakeview Estates public housing complex on the city's west side, which is slammed by dust and fumes from trucks that pass by on a highway that cuts the community off from the rest of the city? Lisa, this is a bad situation for people who really can ill afford extra health issues. And it's been a bad situation for decades. Uh, The Lakeview Terrace Public Housing Complex near Whiskey Island got cut off from Ohio City by construction of the elevated shoreway after the war. And so they're kind of isolated out there and they have to deal with 500 to 1,000 trucks a day through their area going from Whiskey Island because there's Cargill cement and other plants over there to the highway. So they're dealing with dust and fumes and God knows what else. So in Steve Litt's article in Cleveland.com in the Plain Dealer, he says they're going to have a public hearing next week, 
March 7th, and a workshop that's hosted by Ohio City Incorporated and Flats Forward. They want to discuss solutions for Lakeview Terrace and how to reconnect them. There's a study, a $103,000 planning study, Lakeview Connects, and they want to study these better links between Lakeview uh, Estates and areas south of the shoreway. And this area is considered an important link to Wendy Park, the towpath, and the Centennial Lake Link trails. So this workshop next Tuesday will be from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Malachi Center Social Hall at 2416 Superior Viaduct. It's open to all Northeast Ohio residents because they want to get people brainstorming for better connections to recreational areas as well as Lakeview Estates. Also, the Cuyahoga Metro Housing Authority has their own study. They're preparing a Lakeview master plan. And then the city of Cleveland is looking at new truck routes and alternatives to the aging Willow Avenue lift bridge. Yeah, the the idea of all the dust and fumes just constantly being in the air where these folks are. We talk all the time about geography is very much tied to health outcomes. And often researchers are trying to figure out what it is. Is it the food desert? In this case, you have a pretty clear idea what it is. Yeah. And the prevailing winds blow right over Lakeview Estate. So all of that stuff gets carried over their community. Yeah. It's an ugly situation. It'll be interesting to see what the solution is. I mean, unless, what do you do? Close it down? I mean, it's not like you could put up a sound wall. You're listening to Today in Ohio. St. Patrick's Day is a Friday this year, but it's also happening during Lent when Catholics cannot eat meat. What does that mean for corned beef? Laura, what's a good Catholic to do? Don't worry. I read this in my church bulletin on Sunday. So Cleveland Bishop Edward Malesic has formally granted the dispensation from the not eating meat obligation on Friday, March 17th. He does ask that those who eat meat on that Friday, if they have to have their corned beef, that they choose a non-Friday to abstain from eating meat or make some other offering. I got to be clear here. I am not a good Catholic when it comes to not eating meat on Friday, mainly because once I learned it was like a Pope, you know, thousand years ago who decided to help the fishing industry, I decided that was probably not what Jesus intended. The, the, um, I'm going to get hate mail for that, aren't I? Yeah, you are. (laughs) Opening day for the Guardians is also on a Friday during Lent. Are people who go to the ballgame going to be allowed to have hot dogs? No, because first of all, that's Good Friday. So, I mean, if we're going to pick one Friday that you really got to be conscious of the day, it's Good Friday when when Jesus died for the sins of all the world, you know, according to the Catholic faith. So, no, no special dispensation if you go to that game. And I did check. There are still tickets available. Uh, eat your popcorn, your pretzel, no hot dogs. I can't I believe I don't know if they're going to have fish at opening day, you know, a pe- good, good fish fry. I wish you could see me rolling my eyes over here. I can't believe that people, that that you're given a pass for St. Patrick's Day corned beef. (laughs) The entire point is sacrifice, right? Right. Right. It's to remind you. It's a very small sacrifice that you make to remind you of the sacrifice. So we don't just get out of our, you know, obligation to sacrifice by being like, oh, well, but this is something I really want to do today. (laughs) I figure that, well, so the last time this happened was 2017. And of 180 dioceses in the country, at least 80, including most of the major U.S. cities, allowed corned beef on St. Patrick's Day. All I can figure is like, well, I mean... The Irish tend to be Catholic and they don't want to anger their base. 
Well, but it's also one. it's also a saint's day. I mean, it is yes. a Catholic saint that is that is honored on that day with all of the shamrocks and the people walking. But down it's superior. corned beef. Did that I mean, saint love corned beef? Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I, no, I I mean, that's an Americanized version of the yeah. tradition, right? And I don't think they all get, you know, really drunk on green beer in Ireland either. And right. I don't think the bishop said anything about beer. Yeah, that's not me. So I guess you could do that. Regardless. But people who gave up drinking oh. for Lent, they don't get the dispensation. Nope. They can just have the corned beef. Yeah, they I should have know, thought of that before they chose drinking to give up during Lent. because my mom grew up super Catholic and on a farm, right? And she loved Fridays because they got to eat fish sticks and she was tired of eating head cheese, right? So it's, <laughs> it's different for everyone. Also, Sundays don't count in the 40 days of Lent. So they used to eat candy on Sundays during Lent. So I guess, I mean, there are way, lots of ways to bend these rules. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, is it my imagination or are the calves so popular that tickets this season are hard to find? Not your imagination. According to Mark Bona's reporting, the calves have a consecutive home game sellout streak of 44 games, which includes 33 this season. Single game and group ticket sales this season are both on pace for a franchise record in the arena, which covers almost 30 seasons. And it appears they're going to sell out season tickets for next season. I mean, by comparison, the sellout streak when LeBron was with us was well over 100 games. But still, for the post-LeBron era, this is pretty great. According to InsideHoops.com, the Cavs had tallied nearly 622,000 fans, which is the third best in the league. Only four teams had topped 600,000 fans in their home venues this season, us, Philly, Toronto, and Dallas. And the Cavs attribute this to multiple factors. First and foremost, Cleveland fans are incredibly loyal and awesome. And then second, the team works so well together as a unit, which makes games so fun to watch. And finally, you know, got superstar Donovan Mitchell, who's scoring 27.2 points per game. I mean, the Cavs are fourth in the, in the East right now without LeBron. That's amazing. Do you suspect that the, the, the fandom has increased for the Cavs as a result of the Browns fans being turned off by the Watson deal? I think, don't we always see that? I think, I mean, especially think about the year that the Cavs won the championship. It became, the, the intensity of that celebration was heightened by the fact that the Browns were so terrible. <laughs> so I think I think there is a, uh, you know, there's a big contingent of sports fans in Cleveland in general that, that you know, like to put all of their, their, love and attention into the, the you know the the team that's performing best and is making Cleveland proud. But I also think that there is a younger contingent to the Cavs yes. that it, it's been going on for years that it it skews lower than the Major League Baseball or the NFL. And I see it in my my son and his friends. They all love the Cavs. I mean, he has like one Cavs hoodie. He like wears it on rotation, right? As soon as it comes out of the wash, <laughs> he's wearing it again. And he was so excited. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but we don't regularly get Cavs games. And it was on last night. And he was so psyched he got to watch a Cavs game. Well, and this is also the most exciting team we've had since LeBron left. We've got a mm. lot of young prospects that are doing very well and playing very well together. Of course, I was sorry to see Kevin Love go, and I'm sure he was probably like a father figure for those teams. But it's a young, exciting team. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good to see. It's good to see. I I did not know the stat about there were only four teams, and it's very cool to be one of those. So hopefully, we'll be following them all through the playoffs. 
First, though, we have to go through March Madness. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for the Thursday discussion. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Thank you.